This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. This episode is my final episode before I take a brief break from recording. Don't worry, I'll be back in September. When I made the announcement that I would be switching to seasons in order to be able to spend more time with my family, I figured I needed my final episode to be a big one, one to hold you over for two months. I'm pleased to announce that, in my opinion, I was able to do just that by booking Dan Jones as a guest. Dan Jones is a historian and author who many of you may recognize without needing an introduction. For those who are not as familiar with Dan, you may recognize him as the host of Secrets of Great British Castles on Netflix or narrator of Britain's Bloodiest Dynasty, as well as a plethora of Tudor-themed programs. Dan has eight books under his belt, with his most recent one, Crusaders, due out in the fall in the U.S. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Dan Jones to the show today. Dan, welcome to the show. It's very nice to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I would like to start out with a couple questions to kind of get to know you, and then we'll kind of circle back again and just kind of have it all tie in together. So are you ready? Uh, born ready. You ask me anything you want, and I'll endeavor to tell you the truth. Oh, that could be dangerous. Well, <laughs> first we'll start. As you probably know, I am a huge fan of your Facebook Live videos that you do on occasion. Oh and God. Yeah. I love them. I, you, you just come off as very real when you do them. So I think that's why a lot of your followers um, appreciate them so much. In your videos, you mention your daughters. Now, I'm curious, are they interested in history at all? Um, the short answer is no. Um, they more or less couldn't care less about the entire sum of human deeds and achievements. Um, and that's a reaction against me personally. And, um, and I feel like a little bit of guilt about that because it's quite a, a big thing to carry to put two people off. Um, the whole corpus of human history. But I seem to have managed it. But look, they're young, you know, and you, you don't need that many children. I mean, both my kids are, te well, they're under the age of 11. That's so you can't expect them to, to be that interested in history at this age. Maybe they'll come around to it. I mean, I, I wasn't like a history nerd when I, until I was like 30. No, not 30, but like, you know, like 18 maybe. Um, it, so I don't, I don't have massively high expectations with them in their childhood. I can completely relate to that. My teenage son, he's 15. He thinks I'm a nerd because of my obsession with history. His life Wait, is surrounded. Thinks Hold oh, on. He thinks you're a nerd because of your obsession with history or he thinks you're a nerd and you're obsessed with history. Okay. Maybe the latter. <laughs> 
But his life is surrounded by, you know, online video games, Dungeons and Dragons. So my question for you is, what would you say to him to get him interested in learning about, say, the Plantagenets or the Tudors? Well, listen, I think that's kind of a hard sell. That's like, um, let's imagine we were drug dealers and we were formulating a strategy for getting people hooked on our most profitable drug, which might be, let's say, heroin or crack cocaine. I wouldn't go out into the street and say, hey, guys, smoke the crack pipe. I would like give them gateway drugs and like, oh, you know, take a little shot of tequila and then, hey, smoke a little weed. You know, and and I think that that um, slightly immoral analogy applies to history also. I think you can't just like, force people into liking uh, your own particular area of um, of kind of nerdery straight off the bat. Um, so I think that the way to draw people, and it doesn't have to be younger people, but it can just be people who don't naturally feel a sort of affinity for, uh, for history. The way to draw them in is very often um, historical fiction. Uh, one of the reasons that, um, gosh, and we're going to mention this earlier in the interview than I, I suppose I'd even imagined, that Game of Thrones has been so um, successful is that it's, you know, from, from a historical point of view, is that it's drawn people into the kind of broader morass, the broader world of of historical settings, the medieval setting, in a way that feels kind of exciting and uh, in somehow or other relatable or fantastic or um, sexy or cool or whatever. So, I mean, I, I just I, I think the best way to draw people into history in general is to give them great stories that they're going to enjoy as stories per se and not um, to try and drive them straight to the kind of, uh, you know, the hard stuff, the stuff that you and I are on. Right. Um, I think it's it's about gently introduce Jay-Z. You know, of course, you know who Jay-Z is. Jay-Z is a very famous um, rapper. Uh Jay-Z used to say about trying to struggle, uh, trying to smuggle a conscious message uh, into his music. Um, he was like, you know, you've got to feed him sugar. You've got to feed people like uh, the stuff that they like and then drip, drip, bit by bit, the more serious messaging in. And I, I've always thought that that's quite a nice, um, quite a nice analogy. So you mentioned historical fiction, and that was great because that was exactly where I was going with my questioning here. You mentioned Game of Thrones, which, of course, we all know is a huge success with the books and the series. What do you like to read other than Game of Thrones when you're not researching and writing? Um, so when I'm working, which is, let's say, um, 40 or 45, yeah, maybe 42, 45 weeks of the year when I'm writing, uh, I pretty much just read what's pertaining to the book I'm writing. So if I'm writing about the Templars, I'm just reading mainly nonfiction and academic stuff pertaining to the subject, right? Um, then I go on vacation, however many you know weeks of the year, and take the family away, and then I just read um, fiction. And, so, and I go through phases. So I went through a long phase, which I'm sort of on the back of at the moment, of reading like hard-boiled... Uh, American detective kind of crime fiction. So think like everything from, you know, the old classics like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, through to the sort of modern masters like um, James Elroy, uh, George Pelicanos, um, Denny Lehane, uh, who else? Richard Price, those kind of writers. So I, I had a big, big kind of 
mood for those letters. What else have I got? I, I then the last vacation we went on, I read quite a lot of kind of nineteen seventies women writers like particularly a, a great friend of mine gave me um some eve babbitt's stories like written about 1970s la so i've quite a, like an eclectic um taste in fiction which veers toward americana and that may not sound like it um connects particularly with medieval history and that, i guess that's part of the point like i try and just go way way out of the world that I've spent most of the, the year in and um, and just read stuff that I'm really going to enjoy, that, you know, I can't put down and I, I sort of take everywhere and take in the swimming pool and it, it ends up all kind of dog-eared and the pages falling out and sun-bleached. And so that that's kind of my happy space for reading, I guess. So one of the things that's been a hot topic on social media lately is historians who have crossed over to writing fiction. Now, if you were to write fiction, or maybe even say historical fiction, what would mm. you want to write about? That's a good question. Um, and it's, you know, it's a question that from time to time I consider. And I've had a, a couple of editors over the years have tried to sort of push me into, not push me into sort of a, a, a gun on my back, but um, steer me towards the idea of writing historical fiction. And it's something I've like definitely not written off but been wary of doing half cocked if that makes sense like half-heartedly completely um and uh, so to to address your question directly what would i write well you know i would probably take a very obvious commercial decision and say i'm not going to go off and write about um radical feminism in or you know early feminism in 1970s la right i mean much as i probably would like to, that wouldn't make sense commercially and nobody would take me seriously or buy my book so it would obviously be a kind of i imagine a medieval setting uh drawing themes and or characters out of work i've done you know i i i came out of writing about the late 14th century and that's kind of always where my heart lies and there are some great stories i think i think in um my sense is and i I speak as a, a a great novice here no not even a great novice just a novice um that what is fruitful for historical period fiction the backdrop of a time of great change and in that sense uh, I would look at the 14th century probably because you have these sort of great moments of, um, you know, a plague that destroys 50, circa 50% of Europe's population and a period of the birth of the nation state and great popular rebellions and, and things that would probably speak to um, an audience today on more than one level. So what's my short answer? I guess I'd write uh, historical fiction set in the late 14th century. Wonderful. So turning maybe more specifically to your work again, you span an impressive period of time with your books, several centuries, actually. What would you like listeners to take away specifically from your research into the Crusaders? Um, So my book, Crusaders, and that's the one for this autumn, um, is going back to a span of history probably that I haven't, um, you know, uh, a span that's at least as big as Plantagenet's, which is my second book. 
and it's like 400 years. It ranges from, um, you know, geographically from obviously the, the Holy Land, but as far east as Mongolia and, and Iran, all the way uh, west, you know, to Britain and France and Ireland and um, and even the end of the book, this sort of great moment of discovery of the new world. So in a sense, the Americas. So it is uh, I, what I hope people take away from it. And they may... It, it, I, if people have any preconception of what the Crusades were all about, then it tends to be this Richard the Lionheart versus Saladin kind of little period at the end of the um, 12th century, uh, in which you just had basically a bunch of white French men with beards uh, getting at a bunch of kind of Kurds and Syrians and Egyptians, also with beards and also men. And what I've tried to do with Crusaders is, is absolutely blow out um, the scope. So not just geographically, but also the cast list. So I tell this story through the viewpoints of this incredibly diverse range of characters. Um, and I'm trying to be almost uh, provocative in casting those characters. So we have the, the story of the Third Crusade told through the eyes or framed through the, the adventures of a woman from Yorkshire in Northern England called Margaret of Beverly, who fights Saladin on the walls of Jerusalem, wearing a cooking pot on her head instead of a helmet, you know, and, and we tell the, you know, the story of the origins of the Crusades through the eyes of uh, a wandering Sicilian Arab Muslim poet called Ibn Hamdis, who wanders the courts of Southern Europe, composing poetry for the, um, the Muslim rulers of that area to kind of set the scene of what Europe was like at that time. So I think what I, what I want readers to come away with from Crusaders is a sense of like, wow, what a like dazzlingly disparate and diverse and intriguing world. This was far bigger and, and more exotic than the usual vision we have of the crusade story. Um, and with far more, uh, interwoven adventures in strange and wonderful places than we ever really realize. Prior to um, your book, Crusaders, you wrote one on the Templars, correct? Mm -hmm. How do you think that the Templars influenced or otherwise impacted the success of the Crusades? Well, it's hard to talk about Templar success, really, because the story of the Templars um, is really one of, uh, it's a, it's a tragedy, right? You know, if, if we frame it in dramatic terms, and obviously that's taking slightly a leap from from history through to drama, but you see what I'm saying. And the story of the Templars is is about valiant failure, and in the end, betrayal and and annihilation. Um, what you sort of see in the Templars with regards to the broader crusading world, I think, is this: it's the they are the manifestation of two ideas and types within the medieval world medieval western christian world fused together that of the uh the man of religion or in some cases the woman of religion because there were female um affiliates to the the, the temple with the warrior so the warrior and the religious person combine in in one being and in a sense that's what the the crusades certainly at their outset in the very late 11th century are all about. It's about saying, hey, you know what? It's possible um, to express your piety as a Latin Christian, that is someone who, who professes obedience ultimately to the Pope in Rome. It's possible to express your faith through going 
thousands of miles away from home and killing other human beings. And that's something that Jesus would have tipped his, you know, his cap if he were wearing one and said, good show, lads, well done. You know, he'd have, you know, and then that's quite an improbable extrapolation of the teachings of Christ. I think you'd agree to say that, hey, you know what, the thing that that guy was really after was for us to all start killing each other. You know, when you think about it, that's pretty much the absolute opposite of the message of Christ's ministry. But the the theological and political gymnastics that the the, the men mainly who um, conceived of the Crusades and the crusading movement were such that it was all about going killing in the name of Christ. And the Templars, who, who sprung out directly of the crusading movement in the aftermath of the First Crusade, were a sort of institutionalised sort of um radical fundamentalist uh elite unit of crusaders and so they they crystallize the message if you like the templars really seem to be everywhere in pop culture right now you know from books to movies like national treasure and tv shows like curse of oak island which you and i have talked about why do you think that is why the templars everywhere in pop culture partly because they seem uh superficially to be very sort of mysterious, scandalous, um, austere, uh, sexy, and um, uh, misunderstood. And there is a tantalising amount of evidence about the Templars, but an even more tantalising absence of evidence about the Templars, partly as the result of the destruction of the Central Templar Archive which leaves this this great sort of um, space in which you can invent all sorts of weird and wonderful things about them, and it's quite hard to categorically um, refute the wildest and most lurid speculation about the Templars because there's, there is this absence of evidence. Um, partly it's, it's the result of just a shroud of myth and legend uh, that has grown up around the Templars since... You know, since the time of Eschenbach in, you know, writing in 1200, it, putting the temp, you know, all Templar-like knights into the stories of King Arthur. This has been going on for hundreds of years. People have looked at the Templars and thought, wow, that's a weird and strange group of people. Let's make some myths about them. The Da Vinci Code obviously played a massive part in this, you know, the rolling together of the Templars. But I think also the suspicion um, prevalent in, in modern the modern world that there are powerful, invisible um, groups of people, mostly men, who uh, control the world through their networks, through their um, their, their wealth, through their political connections, through their geographical uh, mobility and range. Um, the broad, based in you know in the US and Europe anyway, suspicion of quote-unquote, elites at the moment, um, speaks exactly to the sort of things that people suspected about the Templars. Hey, hang on a second. These are people who tapped into religion and politics and finance and um, warfare, and they're super rich, and they've got a bunch of nice stuff, and they wear uniforms, and they, they only fraternise with one another. Um, it's the same, you know, we, we do have this sense that the world is influenced by such networks of people. And when you see one, like the Templars in history, that it's possible to um, to find out about to uh, and to sort of gawp at, if you like, and you know, and particularly because of the scandalous nature of the Templars' downfall in the early 14th century, uh, it's only natural to start like hyping them up. And I'm not complaining because you know it's been very good for business. You know, writing about the Templars was 
um, one of the most fascinating historical journeys I ever went on, and and it it really tapped a nerve, and I'm glad I did it. So now I want you to tell everybody whether or not you believe that they really buried a treasure 200 feet underground on Oak Island. Jesus Christ! No, of course not. That's mental. <laughs> I, I just had no, to get you. <laughs> the day they find anything on Oak Island, that show it will be cancelled because it it will no longer have a purpose. It's in, it's entirely quixotic, uh, and its its whole um, drive is the sort of uh, quest for um, the end of the rainbow. Uh, it, like it's listen, it's great television. It is great television. It, it is a, it's a sophisticated TV show. Unfortunately, it, it peddles horseshit. It's it's funny because my husband and I watch it religiously, knowing that there's no treasure. We know it, but yet every week they find a little something that pulls you back in and makes you wonder, like, oh, here's a little piece of leather from a book binding. Could it be part of Shakespeare's lost manuscripts? Could it? You know, and it, it gets is, us. Like you, you've said the exact phrase on which uh, the whole premise of Oak Island works, which is, could it be? And of course, the answer is no. But it's very hard. Uh, that's something that's very hard to prove. If I say, could it rain slugs tomorrow and uh, and blood pour from my eyes? Like you would go, no. I'd go, go on, then prove it. And you'd be unable to because tomorrow hasn't happened yet. You'd only be able to prove it when tomorrow came. And it didn't rain slugs and no blood poured from my eyes. But by then it would be too late. I love your reaction. It's fantastic. <laughs> so I had recently watched um, the interview that you did with our friend Christine Morgan after your release oh, oh, of... Christine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did I say? Uh, well, you admitted, it's nothing bad. You admitted that you're a fan of Eleanor of Aquitaine. So I'm curious, what is it about her that intrigues you so? Um, it's just the most improbable story, isn't it? And, and, um, this, you know, quite often what you see in medieval history is people trying to, um, hype up the deeds of women, um, to try, uh, valiantly and correctly, I think in many senses to show that this wasn't just the most terrible misogynistic world, which kept women in a inferior position and denied them power status rights uh, and respect um and very often that effort is a failure because you you're fighting against the against the facts about the medieval world however in Eleanor occasionally a character will come along is so extraordinary um that she transcends all of those um or many of those um binding forces of the society and and Eleanor Aquitaine is that person, you know. She is a, a woman who took control of her career, her life, her you know destiny. If we want to get really sort of um, over the top about it, and uh, shaped her fortune in her world, and you know managed her way out of a, a bad marriage to Louis the Seventh of France, who. Um, you know, had forged this enormously successful to begin with partnership with Henry II of England, who, who endured, um, who, you know, who led a rebellion against Henry II, endured imprisonment at his hands, and then came back and held things together for her two sons, Richard and John. And and it is genuinely a 
phenomenal story um, that transcends its age in many ways uh, and has at its centre this obvious, you know, we, we know actually vanishingly little about Eleanor, certainly compared to many of her, her family. However, the, the sense that she has left on the sources and um, and on the world in which she existed is is that of just an incredibly charismatic and capable politician and woman. And I, yeah, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by her. And she crops up actually in my this new book, Crusaders, um, because she's such a fantastic character to carry a portion of the story. That being the Second Crusade in particular when she travelled to the Kingdom of Jerusalem with her then-husband, Louis VII, um, and was accused of all sorts of sordid misdeeds with her uncle um, in Antioch. And she, she's just the most brilliant character, and I'd like to include her in every book that I ever write, I think. We all have that one person in history, I think, that we feel so connected. For me, uh, you might be surprised to hear that person I feel most connected to is from the Tudor period, and it's Thomas Seymour. There's just something about him that I feel like I can connect with his story. Well, yeah, sometimes you get that. And I think um, you just got to embrace it. You've got to go with it. You know, somebody, somebody's experience over the centuries will speak to you. And, and when it does, to slightly return to one of your earlier questions, it's worth embracing. And, and often that's how people find their way into history through, you know, a single story or a single person's experience that they connect with and then start to kind of unpack um, other aspects of the past from there. So moving forward to Magna Carta, we see its legacy even in the United States. What was the main purpose of the Great Charter? It was a peace treaty. It was a peace treaty between John and the barons uh, that failed. It's it, And it aimed um, to compel a king to rule according to the law of the land, uh, which was a very difficult thing to do because it required constraint of the king in a system where the king's ability to act without constraint was in, in essence was essential to the, the, the good working of the government. So, uh, but its immediate purpose was as a peace treaty and it enshrined a number of different political positions, um, some fairly sophisticated, what we now call constitutional principles, and it contained, certainly in its uh, original issue in June of 1215, it contained a mechanism by which the king could theoretically be chastised, constrained, or even replaced if he broke his own laws. Um, however, because it contained that mechanism, which is known generally as the security clause, and it said that 25 barons can make war on the king if he breaks the terms of Magna Carta, um, this peace treaty led immediately to, um, and inevitably, to a recommencement of the same civil war, which only ended with John's death uh, and then the subsequent expulsion of Louis of France in 1217. So you've got to see Magna Carta as um, a stopgap, really, in, in its political context, you've got to see it as a stopgap in this war between John and the barons, which was itself the culmination of, of rising tension over the decades before between the English barons and their um, Angevin or Plantagenet rulers. So now I want to jump forward a little bit to the 14th and 15th century, which saw the Hundred Years' War. How did the fallout from 
The Hundred Years' War impact both the Plantagenets and the Tudors in the late 15th to early 16th centuries? The fallout of the Hundred Years' War. Well, I, I suppose um, domestically uh, it, it's it's two things. It's expensive and it's humiliating for the English because uh, from the high point of Henry V's achievement of, in theory, uh, a dual monarchy of England and France to be realised under his successor as it turns out to be Henry VI um, and the you know the granting to England under treaty of about a third to a half of the territorial landmass landmass of France uh, you end up with pretty much nothing left bar Calais um, incredible financial difficulties at home a child king who turns out to be the aforementioned Henry VI who's totally hopeless and a long-running civil war, which we now know as the Wars of the Roses. So um, this enormous misadventure overseas for, uh, you know, during the late 14th century phase and early the first half of the 15th century um, gives you more or less the Wars of the Roses. And the Wars of the Roses, as we know, uh, give you the accession in 1485 of Henry VII. So there is a, a sort of fairly direct narrative that takes you from uh, overstretch in foreign warfare to domestic crisis and civil war to, quote-unquote, regime change in the form of the Tudors. So you mentioned Henry VII, Wars of the Roses, as we all know, there's a lot of controversy around Richard III's reign. So what are your opinions on his effectiveness as a ruler and how do you view him? Oh, God, you're just trying to get me into trouble. Uh, like, I I almost despair of talking about Richard III because it's impossible to have a sensible conversation. I agree. Um, and uh, objectively, the, the, there's very little you can say because Richard ruled for such a short period of time Um he appeared to be and probably was a very sort of competent um, deputy or, or one of a number of competent deputies to his brother, Edward IV. Uh, however, the circumstances of his accession um, within the context of his nephew, Edward V's accession, um, were just fatal for everybody involved, ultimately. And it's very hard to assess Richard's domestic legacy because there wasn't really one at all. I mean, look, people always point to some sort of apparently very progressive and forward thinking domestic legislation on being nice to poor people. But really, I mean, give me a break. Like the, there is vanishingly little that you can say at all about any kind of domestic program of Richard III, because the entire reign was focused on a securing the crown to my mind, illegitimately, and B, defending it, to everybody's mind, unsuccessfully. So what lies in between? A few months of sort of scrabbling around, really. And and I resent actually you've even asked me this question, because now as soon as people listen to this, they're going to start just hounding me on the internet once again. Um, and one of the reasons I've run off to the Middle East, as it were, to write about the Crusades, is so I never have to deal with the fruitcakes and kind of... Um, wonks who constitute the broad mass of Ricardians. See, look, I mean, even now I'm talking myself into trouble. <laughs> You're making it worse. <laughs> I'm making my life objectively worse. So we'll change gears a bit after that last question there. Okay. Um, you were fortunate enough to study under David Starkey. Mm -hmm. Who are some of your favorite historians that we may recognize by name? 
today of all time uh, of all time well like starting with Herodotus um who are my favorite historians oh god that's like that's like saying hey what's your favorite book or your favorite album suddenly one's mind goes blank of everything they've ever listened to or read Listen, David's absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, in terms of people who taught me, obviously I still greatly admire them. So Helen Castor was my first supervisor. She was just totally brilliant and, and sort of got me into the Middle Ages. Christine Carpenter, who was the generation above, who was a great professor of English medieval history at Cambridge. Uh, I was taught by Christopher Clark, taught me modern history, great professor at Cambridge also. Um, so those are the... Those are my kind of teachers. David, you mentioned David. Uh, of, the, of that generation, you know, Simon Sharma, I think some of the work that, you know, his book on the French Revolution was absolutely incredible. You know, he was you know, a brilliant prose stylist um, and, a, you know, a great historian, great man. Um, uh, let me look around my shelves. I love Mary Beard writing, you know, about uh, Roman history today. Um, you know, there's... Just read John. I mean, I'm reading a lot of crusade history at the moment. Jonathan Phillips is is a fantastic crusade historian. Obviously, you know, if you want to go into crusades history, there's, uh, you know, very few people are better than Stephen Runciman, who wrote the great three volume history of the crusades. Uh, but, you know, Jonathan Riley Smith, when he was alive, supervised me at Cambridge as well. He was fantastic. Um, and then, if you know, you've got this. We're so fortunate today. There is this incredible group of um historians working and in the uk at any rate we all are sort of peers and kind of move uh, together really and see one another quite a lot and um you know, so susie lipscomb who i've done a lot of tv work with is great um some medievalists coming up at the moment. Sophie Amble has just published a fantastic book about um simon de montford which i would highly recommend to uh, all of your listeners when that comes out in the US um that's called the song of simon de montford god there's just so many and and you know I'll end, it'll end up like an oscar speech and then the the two people i miss out will complain what what's one thing dan that you would like the listeners to know about what it's like to be a historian <laughs> um it's a lot of time on your own um and it takes a lot of work i guess you know the job is 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 digesting massive 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 amounts of material uh sifting sorting building story architecture for it and then and then presenting it um and about 10 years ago i went in la to freddie freddie roach's gym any of your readers any listeners sorry who, who like boxing will know freddie roach's legendary boxing trainer Manny Pacquiao was one of his sort of great fighters but the trained many 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 great fighters and in Freddie Roach's gym which is above a laundrette in uh, Hollywood uh, there's just a, one phrase on the wall and it says it ain't easy and what is true of boxing weirdly is also true of writing history books um, it ain't easy and there's lots of times of, of sort of uh, despair that a you're ever going to get done what you want to get do well you you're ever going to do what you want to get done or b that you're ever going to make enough money to afford the next meal um so uh, yeah so i th i think it's 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 hard it's hard 
uh, it's very rewarding. Um, if you want to make a load of money, move to San Francisco and learn to code. Um, don't become a historian. Uh, but but it is at the same time um, massively rewarding. When you go through those tough periods, um, who is that person that helps push you along? Me. Just you. Really? Me. Yeah. That's, that's I inspiring. mean, look, I've got a great family, Rami, and, and loads of, of great colleagues who um, I, I can go to. But ultimately, you're on your own as a writer. And that's how it is. And you've, you've got to, um, that's a big part of the job is accepting that you have to ha- have an enormous wellspring of, uh, of creative um, inspiration within yourself and resilience to continue working. Um, because it's a job that you're particularly if you're writing books where ain't nobody really invested in the work except for you and uh you can complain about it or, or discuss it with and i have you know I've, i'm very fortunate to have a, a group of great editors i work with um across my various publishing houses who are, are great to bounce ideas off and uh and will help chip me along and my agent will also do that but ultimately ultimately it comes down to yourself your self-belief your your ability to motivate yourself and if you don't have that then then you just isn't going to work yeah it breaks my heart to to know that many of my listeners and followers um, aren't familiar with your writing that they were only really introduced to you from your series the secrets of the great british castles um (laughs) which is which is on Netflix. But let me tell you, you really did an amazing job on that. But my question, because I, you know, have to cater to th- to those listeners as well, is which of those castles was your favorite to visit? Oh man, um, I really liked Dover Castle, which turned out, although we didn't film it in this order, to be the first episode in the first series because uh, it just had such a, a broad range of stories connected with it, right from. I mean, ultimately, kind of Iron Age um, times, or we didn't delve too closely into that in the show. But from kind of Plantagenet era right through to uh, the story of Dunkirk um, and even, the, you know, the nuclear bunkers that were that were built during the Cold War in the cliffs underneath the castle. And I really like that sense that here's, here's a structure that doesn't just take you from, let's say, the 12th century through to the 17th century, which is generally the case with castles because... After the 17th century, as as military um, technology, they're they're obsolete. But uh, but actually runs you right the way through to 1980s. Um, so I so yeah, that that was my favourite, I think. Uh, but, but it was making that series was great. You know, it was it was so much fun, um, and it it has been you know perennially successful in a way that I don't think any of us who made it could ever have predicted. If they were to ask you to do another season, which castle would you love to showcase? Ah, uh, I think. It, well, the one we didn't do is Windsor Castle because it's like the the Queen lives there, right? And and so she doesn't take that kindly to. Um, they, they, you can't really get into Windsor Castle to do a, a whole lot of filming. That would be the the British based one that I would like to. I'd like to do. Um, more than any other but i think you know if we ever were to do a third season which which doesn't look especially likely but one lives in hope um i i think there's so much more to be done if you go outside the uk um i mean there are great castles in ireland 
but there are fantastic castles in France, you know, Chateau Gallard, uh, the Alhambra in Spain, you know, you know, take your pick in Portugal, uh, Italy, Germany, um, all the way through to, you know, if it's ever properly safe to go back and film into Syria with Cratchit Chevalier and so on. Um, or, of course, you know, why, why don't we go out to um, Hearst Castle in the US and see, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a, a modern iteration? I don't know. Like, um, there is there are so many that I would do, but I think my horizon just sort of have moved in recent years in terms of what I'm writing about and studying outside just British history and, and to see British history within the context of the history of of the West at large. And so I think if I were making another season of it, that's what I would um, try and, uh, and bring to it. Of course, that would mean the budget would be, have to be about three times as big. And uh, that's yet another reason why it probably won't happen. Well, to finish out this interview, I do have a few more fun kind of get to know you questions. Oh. Um, and I'll try to go through them quickly here. Cause I've, I've held you for a while. <laughs> Okay. So I personally have several nicknames. My maiden name was Brinker. And when I was a kid, I was called Stinker Brinker. As as an adult, I've been called Rebel, Rebel Jackson, which obviously says a lot about my personality, I think. What nicknames have you had? God, I don't know. I mean, none to my face that I can... um... (laughs) Either repeat or, uh, or or recollect. Um, my daughter Ivy calls me Fat Chicken. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why, uh, because I think consider myself especially portly or cowardly. But um, but maybe she sees something that uh, that I don't. Um, so it's, a, I don't, I don't. it's a term of endearment. That is too funny. Well, I also, I cannot help but notice that you have several tattoos. Uh, How many do you have? Lost count. Uh, <laughs> it's above two dozen. And I just got one this week, um, which is uh, inspired by Freydal, the, you know, the, um, the tournament book created in the 15th century called the Maximilian I, which is like two knights jousting and one sticking a lance to the other one's eye. Uh, which is kind of rib, left side rib cage through kind of hip area, um, which was dazzlingly painful. That sounds Daz- painful. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, no, so I've lost, I've kind of lost count. You know, once you start, there's there's really no stopping, and I'm onto my hands now and everywhere. So that, like, I only hope I don't end up like Mike Tyson a bit on the face. That's the only. <laughs> That's just trouble. Face and neck tattoos. We got to watch yeah. out. It's becoming more acceptable, really. But uh, but face, I think, is still, you know, um, there's a, a a girl called Grace Normal, whose studio I was in this week in Hackney in London, uh, has the whites of her eyes tattooed blue. And I think when you get to that stage, you, you're like, wow, you're in, you're in deep. If I could give you a time machine, where and when would you go with No Limits? Uh, I mean, like, rather than sort of last Wednesday when I did the the online shopping and I forgot to add lime cordial to the, I would I want some now. Um, I would. Uh, where would I? Well, look, I've got to go to the the place that I write about, right? You know, you do, 
I think I would probably go to the Tower of London, going to get myself in trouble again, the Tower of London um, sometime in 1483, um, slash possibly four, uh, and um, check out what was really going on with those little princes. There's so many more things that I want to follow up with that, but I don't want to get you into trouble. <laughs> Tap me for myself, please. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else that you would like us to know about your books? No, except that I just pour myself into them. And uh, and I think it's incumbent on, on each and every one of your listeners to uh, to reward that um, that effort that I've gone to by going out and buying a copy for yourself, a copy for your, you know, your aunt and a copy for your children, um, because uh, I made them for you. Dan, can I ask? We know that you finished Crusades probably a while ago. What are you working on now? So uh, I've, uh, I'm finishing up working on another book with Marina Amaral, my uh, great friend and collaborator. She colorizes photo, black and white historical photos. And we did a, a book last year called The Color of Time, which um, was amazing um, and has you know, gone to like, I think it's nearly 20 countries now in translation and it's just, she's just such a genius such a like, brilliant artist so we're doing another book together for I think I believe it's autumn 21 uh, and then I just agreed to do another big book after that but I can't tell you because I haven't signed the deal but it's it's big it's big in every sense and it's really super exciting um, and I'm like so stoked about it. So we're going to have the run of Crusaders this autumn, October 1st in the US, another Color of Time book next autumn. And then I guess the autumn after that, the biggest book of them all. So, uh, so it's kind of an exciting couple of years, Linda. Mm. And we eagerly await the announcement of what that new project will be. Oh, God bless you. I'm not, I'm not trying to tantalize you on purpose. I just literally can't tell you. <laughs> All right. How how can listeners find you and buy your books, Dan? You can find me, um, I guess, online. You can find me on Twitter at DG Jones, uh, on Facebook, Dan Jones Historian, Instagram, that not very easy to say, D underscore A underscore N underscore Jones. I, that, I didn't think that through so well, but try being called Dan Jones and getting a handle that someone else hasn't claimed already um uh as you said you can watch castles on netflix or you can go to your barnes and noble or any other great bookstore go to your local indie bookstore and support that please um and if they don't have my books in stock then please make fuss um cause a scene complain until they stock them um, i hope you'll enjoy them Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really a lot of fun. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Before I head out for a couple of months, I need to take a quick minute to thank a new patron, Reagan H. Reagan, you and all of the other patrons are the people who make this podcast possible. So thank you so much, you guys, for the last three years of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I promise you when I come back in two months, it's going to be even better than it is now. Thank you so much for your support.